Rusty Quill presents. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If. Only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. This is entry 3113, and it's Friday the 13th in October. Woohoo! It's like uh, double Halloween. So, I saved a special story for today. This is Entry 3113, titled Corpse Singer, written by an exchange member going by the name Donnie Sums, recorded by Cole Weavers.
first met Jerry Dupont in 1986. I was a beat cop and new to the force while Jerry was a mortician, or rather the assistant to one. We didn't have much in common apart from our love of stories and our close proximity to death. Despite that, we became friends and often met at the Rosen Crown to have a drink after work and regale each other with largely exaggerated stories. DuPont had grown up fairly well off, unlike myself. You could tell by the way he carried himself. He was stylish, always opting to dress up for the occasion rather than to dress down. And no matter how straight and rigid his posture was, Jerry always managed to look more at ease in a suit jacket and tie than I ever did in a t-shirt and jeans. One of the first stories Jerry DuPont ever told me at the Rosen Crown was the story of his life and I was deeply interested in the family history he told me. His parents had died early, and all that was left to him was his trust fund, and a gold ring with a black onyx face that he wore in his left-hand pinky. It was the perfect detail to punctuate the tragedy of his youth. It wasn't until his teenage years when the narrative lines he'd laid before me began to cross over one another, and I saw the nature of the game and the rules he'd set between us. I was suddenly less than certain of the accuracy surrounding the death of his parents and the origin of the ring. But the late deceit wasn't off-putting. Instead, I found it freeing. Jerry and I were able to express ourselves to one another with far more candor when the truth was tied in and around hyperbole. His willingness to sit and share his mind with me was a balm to the machismo of my day job and I felt like sparking a friendship with him would be worth more to me than the overtime I was sacrificing by meeting him semi-frequently at the Rosen Crown. And so we began to meet more frequently. We spent those evenings talking, laughing, and drinking well past the time I should have been in bed. Unlike me, Jerry was naturally inclined to love the night, and would often invite the chance to extend our time together well past the closing of the pub. Sometimes we'd continue our discussion or the continuation of a tall tale, but often we'd just revel in the company of one another. I soon began to notice that Jerry had a very sharp, analytical, almost cold and calculated mind. Sometimes I would describe to him a case I had heard about or was working on, and presented it to him as if he were the detective-to-be and not myself. Exercising that part of his brain thrilled him. More often than not, he was able to spin the puzzle in such a way as to find the solution with an ease that was almost elegant in its nonchalance. When I asked him on one of our late night walks after the pub had closed how he managed to deduce the solution with such eerie accuracy, he stated plainly, You always look for the why above all else. You always have. How could you not? You arrive at the scene of the crime, and you are confronted with all angles and aspects of the case. You see the corpse as a human, someone who lived in the home they were killed in, and comfortably only hours before. I only listened, and didn't speak a word. We continued to walk as DuPont left me without resolution to my question. He left me pondering his criticisms quietly before stopping suddenly beside a large maple tree with our feet buried beneath the fallen leaves and continuing. I arrive at work and put my vulcanized rubber apron on. I put my gloves on. I arrange my tools, my saws, my scalpels. 
I turn on my tape recorder and begin to dissect. I see the plain truth of a person laid out before me. I open the window of their soul with a sternal saw, and I peer inside. I can see all there is to someone from above them. They can't lie to me, just like they can't lie to God. I was left wordless, as he seemed to ponder the truth of his own words as if he had never asked the question of himself that I had. Dupont shrugged and sighed before quietly stating, The corpses sing to me. The words would have been poetic had they not chilled me to the bone. He looked away from me, staring down the barely lit street, peering into the darkness. His eyes looked empty and lost in some near-forgotten memory. I saw him for the first time, the duality of Dupont, a person who could coldly put things together and another, who just as coldly took them apart. I grabbed him by the shoulder to shake him from wherever he drifted off to and continued walking. It took a moment for him to follow, but the rest of the night drifted from one topic to another as usual. Astronomy gave way to galaxies, which gave way to the texture of the universe, and in there we found morality defined by evolving philosophy until weariness claimed me and I said my goodnight to DuPont and caught a taxi home. By 1991, I had become a detective, with no help from DuPont, I might add, as I surely could have done so sooner had I relied on him more, but I wanted to achieve the rank on my own merits. DuPont had taught me much about the impartiality of deduction, and I was grateful for it, although sometimes I found myself envious of the inhuman ease his mind moved around murder. I only wonder now if it was because of Jerry DuPont, or in spite of him that I became a detective. One day in the early morning dews of October, DuPont came to me with a newspaper rolled tightly and tucked under his arm. He had a skip to his step as he met me uncharacteristically for coffee. As he sat with no foreword, he pulled the newspaper between us and pointed his finger to the headline. Vancouver, British Columbia, October 8th, 1992. A cloud of fear and uncertainty has descended upon the residents of a rundown social housing apartment building called Rue de Chagrin, as a shocking and unsolved murder case continues to baffle both residents, as well as local law enforcement. The incident, which occurred last week, has left investigators grasping for clues in the aftermath of a brutal and possibly premeditated crime. The victim, a 53-year-old divorcee named Anna Stillwater, was discovered in her unit on the 13th floor by a concerned neighbor, who had not seen her for several days and noticed a foul odor emanating from the apartment. The gruesome scene that awaited the neighbor was one of chaos with the apartment tossed about, broken glass littering the floor and chairs overturned. Mrs. Stillwater lay on the floor in a pool of her own blood, with her throat slashed. More alarmingly, the assailant had made off with valuable jewelry, suggesting a possible motive of robbery turned deadly. What makes this case even more confusing for police has been the lack of any discernible entry point for the assailant, as stated anonymously by someone close to the case. The apartment's door was found locked, and the keys close to the body, and investigators have yet to identify any signs of forced entry, leaving the possibility that the attacker was already inside when Anna Stillwater arrived home before the crime was committed. Despite the apparent lack of forensic evidence pointing to an intruder, 
the local police force remains resolute in their pursuit of the truth. Detective Sarah Reynolds, who is heading the investigation, stated, We are exploring every avenue of investigation and are committed to bringing the perpetrator to justice. This case presents unique challenges, but we will leave no stone unturned. Intriguingly, the victim's landlord, John Miller, when asked to comment on the situation by local reporters, expressed his sympathy for the victim and their family, but also hinted at a possible motive. Miller stated that Miss Stillwater had been consistently late with her rent payments and often had to seek loans, leading to some speculation that financial troubles may have played a role in the tragic events. Authorities are taking Miller's statement seriously, and it is now an integral part of the ongoing investigation. Detectives are delving into Miss Stillwater's financial history and potential connection to determine if any debts or conflicts may have contributed to her untimely demise. As the investigation continues, the community remains on edge, struggling to comprehend the violent incident that occurred within the confines of their modest and tight-knit apartment building. Local residents have expressed shock and concern for their own safety, with many calling for increased security measures in the building. For now, the shadow of this unsolved murder hangs over the neighborhood, and the search for answers is ongoing. When I finished reading the newspaper's account of the events I already knew too well, DuPont said nothing. There's a tension between us that was new to me. And as I looked at him, he stared back at me with that faraway, calculating, inhuman look. His mind working busily in front of me while his gaze peered through me to someplace far away. Finally, he asked me what I thought, knowing somehow that I was assigned to the case. I told him I agreed with my superior, Detective Reynolds, that it was a complicated and unique case, and I was unable to say much else. You're wrong, he said flatly, his eyes snapping into focus. I'd be lying if I said I wasn't more than a little insulted by the tactless assertion he just plainly made to my face. I rested back in my chair, my coffee sending swirls of steam between us. I crossed my arms, trying best as I could not to get defensive as my ego withered inside me. All credit due to Lepont. He let me stew and gave me ample opportunity to assert myself, but I didn't. As much pride as I took in my job as a detective, I knew that he had uncanny abilities that I simply wasn't born with. I gave him a terse nod, and he spoke. Miss Stillwater slashed her own throat. He said, and no more. I was as perplexed as I was disappointed. I had come to know DuPont as a person with a mind as sharp as a razor, and yet there he was, sitting before me, dashing all illusions I'd had of him until that moment. No, I said. The jewelry was missing and the apartment was ransacked. Not to mention the difficulty she would have had sawing through her own throat with a serrated steak knife, I thought to myself. Like a little boy, his eyes lit up. And I realized then that I'd taken the bait. Already on edge, I didn't appreciate the frivolity and joy DuPont took in that moment and felt the hair on my neck raise as I smelt the same psychosis in him that I saw in the many murders I'd investigated at that point in my career. Resting his elbows on the table, crossing his fingers, he began once more to outlay the theory in more detail. Miss Stillwater frequently missed rent payments. This must have been frustrating for the landlord, Mr. Miller so he gives her an ultimatum. Pay your rent or get out. 
She has few belongings save for the jewelry she received as gifts from her husband before they separated. It's her safety net. In fear she's going to lose her place, she pawns them off to make rent and pays Mr. Miller, but is just short of the total amount owing. She's unaware he's just changed the locks. She only sees her apartment door open and Mr. Miller leaving her unit. Assuming he's come to serve her with an eviction notice, she rushes into her apartment, closes the door behind her, only noticing when she's on the inside and hears the lock click from the other side that the second lock beneath the deadbolt has been changed. Mr. Miller, knowing she has adult children, tells her to call one of them to come and pay the remaining rent owed and leaves her locked in her apartment. It was only then that DuPont paused for the first time to catch his breath. That's unlawful imprisonment. Why didn't she just call the police? I asked. DuPont smiled at me and I only resented him more in that moment despite our friendship. It felt as though he was gloating now as he continued to make his wild assertions. Miss Stillwater refrained from calling the police because she was afraid that they would have her removed from her apartment. It isn't rational to think that that would be the case in her circumstance, but also she feared she'd be homeless. Miss Stillwater also refused to call her children because of pride. She's their mother and would never want them to take care of her. That's her job, to take care of them. No, instead she stays in the apartment and wages a silent war of attrition, knowing she has enough food to outlast the cruelty of Mr. Miller. The only problem is the building itself. It's derelict. The owners are slumlords. There's a CO2 leak in the apartment and Miss Stillwater begins to find herself short of breath. She's breathing, but the feeling of drowsiness overcomes her and her heart rate increases. No matter how hard she tries to breathe in deeply, she feels as though she's suffocating. Miss Stillwater rushes to the door, but it's locked. She's getting dizzy and crashes about her apartment as she falls back on her instincts to survive. She thrashes about the apartment, tossing chairs and smashing the pictures on the walls. Finally, when she's exhausted all options, she grabs a steak knife and begins trying to give herself a tracheotomy. It's the only thing she can think of, but she digs too deep and loses balance as the apartment swims around her and her vision starts to go. She falls and her elbow crashes into the ground, with the knife tip underneath her skin. The force drives the serrated knife through ligaments and tendons and is sent skittering across the floor away from where she lies bleeding out. It would have been impossible for him to know that any of what he claimed was certain. But at the same time, I was unsettled to know that somehow, my friend had been aware of case details we'd kept under tight wraps and away from the press, such as the fact that a serrated knife had been used. Could my friend, Jerry DuPont, the sharpest mind I'd ever met, be the killer? I'd known him so long, and yet there was always the underlying lack of humanity. Could he be toying with me, I thought to myself at that moment, using our standing rapport to set our sights away from himself and make her a victim of circumstance and cruelty? I countered then, trying to shake my mind free of the suspicion. Her fingerprints weren't on the knife, I said, feeling the tension loosen from my shoulders as his version of events crumbled before me. Then, without a pause, he said, The cat licked it clean. But there was no cat. The building was pet-free. 
and I felt a burst of laughter ripple through my chest at the absurdity of the claim. Dupont looked at me. I could tell he wasn't taking kindly to my reaction and wasn't used to my dismissal. I'd never once in all our years questioned his deductive mind. Rather, I'd relied on it. He slapped his hands on the table, startling me as I fell quiet, before quickly placing them in his lap, shamed at his own out-of-character burst of emotion. Mr. Miller came to check on Miss Stillwater, unlocking the door and letting the scent of her bloated body out into the hallway, alerting her neighbors, and in the process let her cat, which she was not allowed to have, out into the hallway. I simply shook my head. It was too ridiculous. I did, however, offer my friend an olive branch, suggesting he needed more sleep, or that he was perhaps bored with his own work and had begun daydreaming. Maybe he should pick up a hobby not centered around death, I suggested. Once again, in a dismissive tone, I looked back on with shame. Check at the pawn shops in the area, ask the neighbor, check the keys and evidence, they won't match the door. Talk to your friends and see for yourself that she had a cat. He said in a huff as he stood up, pushing his chair over in humiliation due to how I was treating him. I was stubborn in that moment, refusing to assuage his hurt feelings, remembering the tall tales we used to tell one another at the Rosen Crown. But as he walked away, I couldn't help myself and asked him how he could be so certain such a ridiculous story could be true. He turned, his face red, and said, Her corpse sang for me. Please fast forward the tape to the end of this side. Then turn the tape over and you're ready to play the other side. Tiny Terrors is an anthology horror podcast produced by Pulp Audio and licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 4.0 International License. This episode was directed by Cole Weavers, with sound production and editing by Mike LeBeau. To find additional information or to join our Patreon for additional content and ad-free episodes, visit our website, www.tinyterrorspod.com. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Tiny Terrors Pod. Or join the Pulp Audio Discord by clicking the link in the description below. Rate and review us on Spotify and Apple. And finally, thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.